I meant to tell you, my wife was talking to her grandfather, my grandfather-in-law, is that what he's called? <laughs> my grandfather-in-law, who's a Presbyterian minister and telling him about this podcast. And, and they figured out that he actually knew your father, who was an Anglican minister, and your mother as well. I don't know whether it was from living in the D.C. area or during the civil rights movement, which they were involved in or what, but, but they knew each other. Rigdon, Bruce and Mary Rigdon. They were from Chicago. I don't know, but my I know my parents had some friends from Chicago in church circles. Um, my brother's father-in-law and uh, was a was an was a Methodist preacher who was in had some Chicago affiliation. So they're all you know it's it's a small world. It's like you know when when uh, two people whose parents were rabbis. Get, you know, it's, it's not a huge shock that they that they knew each <laughs> other in some way. Yeah, well, it sounds like they had a lot in common. And but speaking of that, uh, they did not share in common, by the way, uh, a sympathy for Zionism or Israel. To put my Presbyterian grandfather-in-law's feelings mildly. No, that uh. you get. I mean, you know, the mainline Protestants. Uh, Niebuhr was in the minority, and he was often made to feel that. That's right. Yeah. Well, before I get uh, into any trouble with the family, let's start the podcast. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters, brought to you by Tablet and Hudson Institute. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and help you enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Walter, let's jump right in to a round of news or faux news. toss out three stories in the news cycle and you tell us what's real and what's BS, what listeners should actually pay attention to and what they can safely ignore. Are you game? Let's give it a shot. First story. The DC-based nonprofit No Labels is working to run a third-party unity ticket in the 2024 presidential election to avoid what it calls a contest between unacceptable candidates. Some Democrats and anti-Trump conservatives are reportedly working to sabotage the no-labels effort, which they see as a de facto assistance to Trump by likely splitting the Biden vote. So a third-party unity ticket, so-called. News or faux news? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, you know, if uh, it may not even be Trump versus Biden in 24. So uh, the whole thing is a little bit hypothetical. And I think this is typical in these kinds of, of efforts. There's so many different things going on there. I suspect there's some people who are part of this because they hope there's going to be a ballot line. You know, ballot access is one of the really toughest and most expensive things to do in the United States. And so if you, you know, once you've gotten through that, there are a lot of places where it's much easier to keep ballot access once you've gained it. And so somebody may end up with kind of a long-term asset here. And I'm not sure that everybody involved in the no-labels effort 
is is aware of some of the equities and and hidden agendas that might be going on. You know, as as to whether this would help Biden or Trump, I think that's also you know that that we just don't know at this point how that's going to go. Um, it is true that I mean I I just saw recently a Pew poll that was that was putting Biden's approval rating at thirty five percent. If you've got approval ratings in that range, then you really don't want a single one of your voters to be siphoned off because you're going to need every voter you can get to the polls in that case. But on the other hand, it's not exactly as if Donald Trump has become, you know, the consensus candidate for the United States. So I'm, I'm really, I think there might be a surprisingly large number of people who would want to vote neither of the above. Probably, though, if, if, if you were thinking about the Democrats, the thing to worry about most probably would be there will be, I think, if, if Trump is the nominee, a lot of conservatives who normally vote who just wouldn't go to the polls because they're so turned off. That would depress down-ballot races for the Republicans like the Senate and the House. So the extent this may have a sort of unbalanced uh, impact that helps Republicans and hurts Democrats, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some swing Senate seats, for example, where something like this might bring people into the polling place and then they vote no labels at the top of the ticket and vote Republican further down. All right. Story number two, one that's near and dear to your heart, Walter. In Argentina, inflation has reached something like 120%. The New York Times reports that the street value of the crumbling Argentine peso is fueling a boom in the country's restaurant scene, with diners eager to get rid of the currency as quickly as possible by going out to eat and drink more often. Inflation in Argentina, another trip around the sun. Is it news or faux news? Well, it is, uh, you know, swallows return to Capistrano. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> It's kind of at about that level of news, and if, if by news we mean what's unexpected. I will say it's actionable information, however. Some of my fondest memories, travel memories, and I have a lot of travel memories, are back in the 1980s. I had a friend who had a Fulbright, which meant he was in uh, Buenos Aires for quite a while, and he invited me down for a few weeks to come visit him and see the country. Of course I accepted and the, uh, the inflation at that time was so bad. Um, I was once in a, took a taxi ride out to someplace in the morning. I came back and they'd raised the fares because inflation had done it. I watched, uh, I was standing in the cathedral in Buenos Aires and uh, there was a, a, a beggar family sitting on the steps of the cathedral and um, currency notes, bills were flying by on a brisk wind like one peso notes, and the beggars weren't even bothering to reach up and grab the money because with one peso note, 640 of them to the dollar. It literally was not worth picking up money, catching money out of the sky. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was pretty amazing. But what really was also amazing was how delicious dinners were available in Argentina for in US dollars, very, very little money. So if any of your readers have ever, if any of our listeners 
have ever thought, uh, gosh, should we, is this the year we should go to Patagonia? Let me suggest that maybe it is. All right, third and final story. In 2022, a delay in property tax receipts left Chicago's pension funds without enough money to pay the city's retirees. To plug the gap, the city funneled over $500 million that was earmarked for payments later in the year and early 2023. It was the largest advance ever in one year in the city. And according to Bloomberg, Chicago's pensions could take an even deeper hit this year if a market route erodes returns or a possible recession hurts uh, city tax revenues. Now, unless you yourself are a pensioner in the city of Chicago, this Seems like a pretty ho-hum story, Walter, but I have a a feeling you'd say otherwise. So is this news or faux news? You're absolutely right. It really is news. Uh, Let's first hope there isn't a recession or downturn later in the year. That would not be good for anybody. Uh, But, um, you know, if there is an example of wretchedly irresponsible behavior in this country of people doing terrible damage to minority children, public school children, to teachers. It is the way that public unions and politicians, public sector unions and politicians in many American cities, and Chicago is is pretty much at the bottom of the barrel, but it's not alone down there, uh, have, have basically broken every law of financial prudence uh, in, in dealing with pensions, which after all for these people are their livelihood in old age. Um, You have people who've been working for 35, 40 years in a public school teacher, or may I say also as police workers or fire workers, and they they can't go out at 83 years old and get another job uh, and and make that money back. But what's been happening is this, and it, it is really horrifying. It is so unethical. I don't know what to say, but Public sector unions will basically, the leaders of those unions will want to get big pay raises. Very often politicians look at that and they say, and they're right, we can't afford to give you a big raise because then we would have to raise taxes. And every business in downtown Chicago is already looking for the exit. You really, you know, we can't do this. And often the compromise that people sort of come to is fine you know what we'll give you a really small raise a smaller raise now but the pension we're going to like add to the pension you're going to have this fabulous pension in 30 or 40 years and then they don't set aside enough money out of current revenue to pay the pensions and they have been doing this for decades so the result is the union leaders look good they bask in the glow of their members oh look at what you're doing And the politicians, they get voted back in by these same public sector union workers. And everybody else is thinking, hey, our taxes aren't going up, how bad it could be. And of course, these people couldn't be possibly be planning to like destroy our city's future by sweetheart back street deals, drug deals, basically, in the in the pension funding. But they are. They are. And. Uh, in city after city, in state after state, because this is a national problem and not just a Chicago problem, we are facing an increasing fiscal squeeze. Very often what happens is that when cities and states get behind in paying these pension funds, you have to start 
putting more of your general revenues into shoring up the pension fund. And that means fewer tax dollars available for, for services to current city residents, like schools, like fire departments, like police departments. By the way, this is hardly the way anybody wanted to defund the police, I would think, is having to put all the money to shore up weak pension funds. Um, and so you're getting this trade-off. In some ways, it turns out to be because of the demographics, a lot of these retired teachers and so on are like whites who now live in the suburb. And so inner city minority kids are having their educational future squandered in order to send money out of the city into the suburbs. It's crazy. All right. Now, much of what goes on in this kind of financing might well be a crime if it happened in the private sector. That is, if a private company uh, handled the pension programs for its employees with this sort of complete disregard for, for fiscal responsibility that we see in many cities and states, those people actually would end up in jail and should end up in jail. And they're, they're quite tough laws about some of this. Interestingly, whenever it's proposed that we extend these laws to city and state governments so that they actually have to measure up to the standards in the private economy, amazingly, all these Democratic politicians who constantly talk about more regulation, we have to stop financial pirates from impoverishing poor people. We've got to protect the middle class by having financial rectitude. They all fall silent. All right. They don't want regulation of the pension funds of city and state workers. The only protection these workers have. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's, uh, I don't like using the word evil lightly, but there's a tinge of evil in it. And it, uh, it needs to stop. Well, it will stop sooner or later because, as they say, when something can't go on forever, it won't. And um, city populations are declining in part because high taxes and declining services are make, have made cities less pleasant, in part obviously because working from home and so on means you don't have to do all these things if you don't want to, have to put up with it all. And that means you have a smaller and smaller tax base supporting this large number of retired workers and these pension obligations that are not fully um, accounted for. So it's a, people talk about the possibility of a doom loop in certain cities. Well, I hope we don't go there, but I think that, that we do need to, you know, as a country, we need to take a very long, hard look at the way uh, city and state governments have have spent their way into a, a very, very ugly situation. And it's an ordinary people are going to be the, the, the ones who suffer. Well, as you said, Chicago and Illinois are not alone at the bottom of the barrel uh, in this pension crisis. So it's one I'm sure we'll keep returning to throughout the podcast. But that's it for the news this week. Let's go to our next segment, The Learning Curve. Each episode, we draw on a blunder from American or world history with relevant lessons for our own time. 
Walter, a major story in the news has been the global fertility crisis, especially in OECD countries. The decline in birth rates pretty much across the board carries a lot of risks from, uh, you know, reducing the size of a society's workforce to redirecting resources to an aging population. Uh, but you do still encounter many people who are actually in favor of degrowth through declining fertility, which they see as a solution to problems that you might call both real and imagined from global warming to also apparently things like overpopulation and and food scarcity. Now, you were quite young, but you did live through the publication of the book, The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, who was actually back on 60 Minutes recently where he uh, argued that the book has now been fully vindicated by events. Uh, But I think uh, especially a lot of our younger listeners probably still are unfamiliar with him and his work and the impact that it had on social and economic discourse in the United States. So take us on a journey uh, through the work of Paul Ehrlich, and you know, don't be don't be afraid to start with Malthus if you need to. Well, I do. I, I have to say, I, I do remember when that book came out and everybody talked about it. You know, this was definitely the crisis, and he didn't originate this. This panic, um, the Malthusian panic of overpopulation. Uh, had been spreading through the world. The UN was studying it, the Rockefeller, all the big foundations and philanthropies. You know, if Bill Gates had been around, then Bill Gates would have been all over this. All of that type of, the great and the good, just went around wringing their hands, constantly deploring the population bomb, the population bomb. So Ehrlich, you know, doesn't actually deserve any credit for being original. But what he act- what he did, though, he, he pulled together all the most extreme um, examples or projections and came out with like, it's already too late, it's over by the 1970s. Hundreds of millions of people will be dying in famines every year. You know, I only wish on 60 Minutes when he claimed to be fully vindicated, they'd started reading to him passages of this book that are utterly ridiculous. <laughs> All right, There's, there have been few greater examples of utter quackery than the work of Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. Right? And it's panicked people. It panicked me. I was 17 years old. I thought, I'm doomed to live in a world of mass starvation. You know, then I would quietly think, well, fortunately, it's not going to be happening here. But, you know, <laughs> but I'll be forced to suffer through news stories about hundreds of millions of people dying in other parts of the world. And yes, absolutely. You know, interestingly, it always was that poor people were having too many children. And so, you know, the U.S. was, you know, I mean, there was compulsory sterilization in some countries, um, the Chinese one-child policy. The U.S. government was actually, you know, the State Department was pushing people, and AID, our foreign aid program, was pushing all of these countries around the world to reduce their population growth and so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's really an amazing thing to watch. And in retrospect, it looks pretty stupid. You know, if, if sometimes people wonder why Uh, People are skeptical of whether it's the climate change thing or other confident predictions from the world of science. Part of it is that those of us have been around for a while, have seen the U.S., the U.N. go on on massive wild goose chases, have seen the entire foundation establishment swallow the most idiotic nonsense and try to sort of broadcast it out to the world. 
Uh, it, it, so there's this, you know, sadly, um, just because someone has a lot of scientific credentials, just because they teach in a prestigious department, doesn't actually mean they have the, any idea what they're doing or saying. And this, I'm afraid, is, is one example. When we look at the whole thing kind of in retrospect, it does seem pretty clear that there are some dynamics associated with economic growth and development and population. And it appears that, that um, when that, that the advent of, sort of modern medicine and modern knowledge in the beginning does cause very rapid population growth, especially in poor and r largely rural countries. Because people there, you know, um, for centuries, millennia, there's no social security network, safety network, as a, in a rural area, the more kids you have, the chance is it's not so much, yes, it's more mouths to feed, but it's more hands to work, and then more hands to support you in your old age. So there's people want to have them, and then when you have high infant mortality with half the children dying very early in life, if you want three kids, you need to have six, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of, and then when then when you start getting antibiotics and you start getting uh, better um, health practices generally, you know, instead of losing half the kids, you might lose 10% of the kids. And so now more kids are living and it takes a while for people's expectations and behavior to adjust. But also the big driver is when, when you get uh, urbanization and people start moving to cities, Children are, you know, as many of our listeners may have noticed if they have children and live in cities, children are a ex very expensive hobby in a city. They don't actually bring any economic return <laughs> until they're in their 20s or Alas. 30s. Right. And Alas. even then, you're not going to get any of it. You know, it's a, uh, it's a pretty, it's a, it, it is a very expensive pastime having children. And so... Shockingly, all over the world, as people move into cities and sort of figure out the dynamics of urban life, their behavior changes. And, the, you know, there are fewer children. And as birth control and so on has become more widely accessible, we see more and more of that. So this is, um, you know, it's a, it's a pattern. It's, uh, it, it makes sense. Um, but we still have this Malthusian sort of knee-jerk reaction. I do think it's some of the folks uh, in the in this zone, world of the climate movement in particular, uh, you know, and it's very easy to sort of say, well, if we've got 3% per year population growth in Africa and it's developing so that each person is going to be using more fossil fuel or whatever, why then you just make a chart of the carbon emissions that are becoming from a growing population that each one is using more and blah, and, you know, and pretty soon it's like you've got conditioned Venus, runaway greenhouse effect, and we're all going to die. Um, and, you know, and people like Paul Ehrlich, this is their stock in trade. This is what they do is terrify people by throwing together a bunch of shaky assumptions to create pictures of doom. So I suppose in one sense he is vindicated, which is that after all these years, there's still a market for that kind of claptrap out there. Well, that uh, actually unexpectedly takes us uh, very nicely into our final segment, The Big Conversation. 
So Walter, in a previous episode, we talked about the information revolution, that conversation and your tablet essay on which it was based was Kubrickian in scope. We started literally in the primeval era before the Stone Age and charted the rise of human technology and scientific knowledge and the accelerating social and economic changes that come in their wake. But the information revolution is only the first of three kind of grand narratives that you see as shaping our lives in the world we live in. Another of these narratives has to do with the rise of Anglo-American power over the last 300 years, and we'll cover that in a future episode. But this week, uh, we're gonna talk about the one that comes, I guess, chronologically after the story of technological progress, and that is the rise of Abrahamic religion. Tell us what that is and what it's been doing in world history. Well, you know, it's, it's really remarkable when you, I mean, we don't, people don't comment on this much and maybe it's because when something is just so obvious, people don't like to pay attention to it. But, you know, according to the best records we have, and they may not be very good, say that, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East, this uh, guy named Abraham was sitting peacefully at home and he heard this voice. The voice said, get up and go, you lazy slug. Get out of here. Leave your father and your father's gods and go into a new land and there I will show you the promise and you'll find me. Well, Abraham uh, got up and followed the voice, goes out, and over the years, he hear, the, the voice keeps talking to him and you get more promises. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The entire human race will bless itself in your name. Kings will be descended from you, etc., etc., etc. And the funny thing is, is that a pretty good interpretation of all subsequent history is that it's been the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham because Abraham, Christians, Muslims, Jews, all look to Abraham as the founder of their faith in a monotheistic God, a God who rules all history, a God who is a God of ethics and of power, who cares passionately about each individual human being, a God who's a personal God. All of these ideas come to us out of this cycle of stories that kind of begin with Abraham, this early prophet. To, in, in the 21st century, as far as I can tell, for the first time in history, more than half of the human race now professes one of the three great Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, to list them in chronological, though not um, numeric order. And uh, about 2.8 billion Christians, I think the last time I looked, about 1.1 uh, billion Muslims, I'm not quite sure, 1.7, and about 14 million Jews. Um, and that is, you know, that's more than half the people alive on the planet. There really isn't anything like this in human history that a sort of a very specific kind of intellectual moral theological vision which we can which starts in a very very small tiny way then spreads in, in to, to this dimension 
it doesn't, though it isn't just about the religions, and I think this is something people often don't see, that Abrahamic religions share a certain vision of history. Um, what they all, they, they all have this idea that in the beginning, at the time when the human race began, we lived in perfect harmony with each other and perfect harmony with God. It's this kind of idyllic, paradisical situation. Our listeners have probably heard of the Garden of Eden, you know, and, and that idea. But then humanity blows it, and we have the fall of humanity, original sin, however different religions sort of treat the theology and label it differently. But basically, we go from that primeval paradise into the muck and misery of war, of oppression, crime, human beings turning against each other, ignorance, disease, all of this terrible stuff that happens. You know, perhaps it's a kind of a folk memory of the hunter-gatherers, you know, living happily in the, you know, pre, pre-urban, pre settled agriculture, no kings, everybody does what they want to do. And then they fall into the world of these horrible slave empires and everything is terrible and there's no way to get out of it. But then once you're in that zone of history, the three Abrahamic religions have this idea that God then doesn't just leave humanity to suffer in this you know cesspool of our own creation, but sends prophets, Uh, sense inspiration, God reaches into the mess of history and starts fashioning a way out. And again, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam would all disagree about the details and the scenarios, but the overall picture is the same. And then at the end of history, a phrase that Francis Fukuyama essentially borrowed from this Abrahamic historical narrative. At the end of history, we go back into a kind of a, a renewed paradisical relationship. Uh, people will be, will be good to each other, will be in the right relationship with God. Maybe the Messiah does it. Maybe um, Jesus returns in the last judgment. Maybe Muhammad brings Islam to, you know, everybody's got their own take on how it happens. But that's the schema of Abrahamic history. Well, interestingly, if you look at um, the two kind of secular political movements that have the greatest hold in the world, and I'd say that's liberal democracy and Marxism, right? They share that Abrahamic schema. They're secularized forms of Abrahamic faith. So again, liberalism, we see, you know, we're through technological progress and the rise of enlightenment, humanity is getting better and we're working our way back up to a state of universal peace. The United Nations will run everything or, you know, however, it, whatever form your imagination gives it, we'll all live like the European Union, only better. But the liberal paradise is out there. And obviously Marxism is the same thing. Karl Marx even quite consciously um, took the Garden of Eden in Marxism that's known as primitive communism. Uh, you know, that this hunter-gathering stage, Engels wrote about it. So 
Now, so that if you throw in with the three Abrahamic religions, you throw these two Abrahamic faiths, secular Abrahamic faiths, liberal democracy and Marxism. All right, now you got China in the match. You've got, you know, all over the world, there's this kind of overwhelming Abrahamization of human culture, human society, human political thought. There is really nothing comparable to this in the intellectual and cultural history of the human race, but you don't hear very much about it. You don't hear people talking about it very much. You don't hear people thinking about what it might mean. So maybe we should be doing a little bit more of that. That's kind of what I'm suggesting in this essay. And I think in some other essays, I'll start trying to point out, okay, well, what does it mean? And what are some of the implications? How can keeping this grand narrative fresh in our minds, how can that help us understand the news, current events, and maybe our own fate a little better? Well, it's interesting because in, in the information revolution essay, you know, you talk about the possibility of a singularity and how the approach of a possibility of a technological singularity as a feature of history is new. And it's interesting because, you know, the, 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 that idea that you, that you spoke about, that history is moving towards some sort of ending or climax or ultimate point that all the Abrahamic faiths share and that liberal democracy and Marxism also share. You know, one of the things that's interesting is you're used to the idea that technology and modernization lead human beings maybe away from the need for, for religion uh, and that you know the more scientifically and technologically advanced we get, the less need we have for religion. But you seem to, to think that the, the approach of a singularity actually strengthens religious and especially Abrahamic thought all over the world. Well, I think all three of the Abrahamic religions, as they look at the potential approach of, the, of, the sing, of a singularity, let's not say the singularity, because you can all see several of them, some quite bad like nuclear war or uber-destructive climate change, some, I don't know, AI, you know, could, be, could go either way, or universal reign of peace and prosperity, you know, there are lots of, lots of scenarios out there. Um, but the Abrahamic religions would basically say, see, we've been telling you all along. Um, you know, it's, uh, we told you this was going to happen, but also again, it turns politics into the apocalypse since that if, you know, if only if, if humanity faces an extinction event in climate change or nuclear weapons, and one political party is advancing policies that would save us from this menace, and the other political party is in favor of things that would bring this menace closer or even bring it on, then politics is no longer conventional politics. I think the marginal tax rate should be 12%. You think it should be 15%, right? But this is existential. Politics becomes religious war with the salvation or the survival of humanity as the stakes of who gets elected dog catcher in some little town to some degree. We, we move in and, and we can see this driving polarization in the United States. But I think if you look around the world, you can see how this kind of sense of an impending singularity that changes the nature 
of politics is something you can see it basically in every civilization, every culture in the world, in its own way, taking different forms, but, and that in some ways, you know, as one looks at it, that, that looks like something that could bring the singularity closer. Because if we're all polarized and screaming at each other and we're acting like every presidential election is, you know, the fate of mankind hangs on this. Well, Teddy Roosevelt did say in 1912 when he ran on the Bull Moose platform, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. Um, you know, that's where maybe a lot of people are increasingly feeling that, and that's one reason our politics is so angry and conflicted and polarized. Yeah, one well, interesting way, maybe your kind of average uh, church-going or, or mosque-going or synagogue-going American has been grappling with these kinds of ultimate questions uh, for, for even longer than some of the uh, more recent AI doomers and AI extinction theorists that, that have uh, suddenly become such a large feature of, of discourse in the U.S. You're right. And it's, it's even possible that some of our religious traditions contain the kind of spiritual and intellectual resources that can help us think clearly and act wisely uh, at a moment of great peril for our species. Well, we'll leave it there and close on a final question. The tip of the week. Seeing as this podcast is a collaboration between Tablet and you, Walter, one of the country's leading Americanists, and as long as we're talking about biblical themes, it made me think of the the influence of the Old Testament, not only in American religious thought, but also of the kind of prominence of Old Testament characters and themes in American music going back to the very beginning. So let's get an American music recommendation from you this week. New or old, just one of your favorite picks. One of your non-Taylor Swift picks, I should say. <laughs> We're tired of hearing about your, your life as a Swifty. <laughs> well, you know, I've always had a soft spot for communist folk songs. Uh, and one of them that I really enjoy is the Ballad of October 16th. When we think of anti-war songs, we usually think of like anti-Iraq war songs or in my generation, anti-Vietnam songs or what have you. But actually before June 1941, uh, there was a huge left-wing anti-World War II movement in this country. You know, Hitler and Stalin had signed their non-aggression pact and were kind of de facto allies at that time. So when World War II started, the American Communist Party loyally came to Stalin's support and really was telling everybody, you know, stop the war. This war is the most, you know, it's an imperialist war. We should have nothing to do with it. Now, they all changed on June 22nd, 41, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union and suddenly became, no, 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 we got to fight the war harder. We got to get in now. We got to really fight. We got to do everything we can to help Stalin. So they totally flipped on a dime, no doubt because of their deep sense of American patriotism. I can't think of any other reason. But they came up with some pretty good anti-World War II and anti-Roosevelt songs. And, and uh, this one is by the Almanac Singers. And uh, it's uh, the Ballad of October 16th. I think my favorite line, uh, the chorus goes something like, uh, uh, Oh, Franklin Roosevelt told the people how he felt. 
we damn near believed what he said. He said, I hate war and so does Eleanor, but we won't be safe till everybody's dead. So see, if, you know, I know it's on Amazon Prime. I suspect it's on a bunch of the other streaming services. Well, there you have it. Thank you to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Tablet's Jeremy Stern. We will see you next time. It was on a Saturday night and the moon was shining bright. They passed the conscription bill and the people they did say for many miles away was the president and his boys on Capitol Hill. Oh, Franklin Roosevelt told the people how he felt. We damn near believe what he said. He said, I hate war, and so does Eleanor. But we won't be safe till everybody's dead.